All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fuck nicks? What the fuckocrats? What the fuck publicans? I don't think there's a lot of you, but I'll say hello anyways. I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. Welcome back. Get out of here. Whatever you need to hear. So today on the show, uh, John Doe is back. That's what he's up first. He's the lead singer of the band X and was on back in 2015, episode 586. He has a new movie out. So it was a good time to have him back. And uh, Rodney Crowell, Rodney Crowell is also here. He's one of the biggest country music singer songwriters out there. Uh, not just for himself, but for other artists as well, like Jerry Reed, Guy Clark, Emmy Lou Harris, Bob Seger, Crystal Gale. He's had five number ones on the Billboard country charts and two Grammy Awards. And he's just uh, most recently uh, produced a record with um, Jeff Tweedy of Wilco. It's called The Chicago Sessions, which is great. And it's one of those things with him where, you know, I didn't know. I didn't know about Rodney Crowell. I'd gotten a few of his records here and there sent to me, and I didn't know where to, where, how to contextualize them, where to place them. And then I was at Willie's 90th, uh, the night, the second night when Keith was there, Billy Strings, uh, and Rodney Crowell came out with just a guitar and did a song, and it fucking was devastating to me and had so much presence. That was also the night I had the Dave Matthews revelation that I didn't want to have, which was that uh, he's a... a very talented and uh, charismatic and uh, engaging performer. He also stepped out there with just a guitar, but I, I've kind of compartmentalized that. There, there's something I'm still refusing to accept about Dave Matthews as a whole thing. But uh, Rodney Crowell, just like I, I was crying. And, you know, that's not, that's not hard right now, the crying. It, it's not, it comes, it definitely comes. But these guys are on. I'll talk a little bit more about my relationship with country music in a minute uh los angeles hey i'm at the elysian theater this friday december 15th and next friday the 22nd i'm at dynasty typewriter on thursday december 28th and i'm at largo on tuesday january 9th now those shows like on the 22nd and the 28th they might be just me and you whoever you are and the few people you bring but look we'll work it out i've, I've got to work it out so if you want to be present for that, I would come to those. And then I'm in San Diego at the Observatory North Park on Saturday, January 27th for two shows. San Francisco at the Castro Theater on Saturday, February 3rd. I'll be introducing a screening of McCabe and Mrs. Miller on February 4th at the Roxy in San Francisco. You can get tickets for that at roxie.com. Portland, Maine, I'm at the State Theater on Thursday, March 7th. Medford, Massachusetts, outside Boston at the Chevalier Theater on Friday, March 8th. Providence, Rhode Island at the Strand Theater on Saturday, March 9th. Terrytown, New York at the Terrytown Music Hall on Sunday, March 10th. Man, I'm going to be driving to those, I bet. Yeah, I'm probably going to be driving. I wonder if it's going to be snowy and freezing. Probably. Atlanta, Georgia. I'm at the Buckhead Theater on Friday, March 22nd, and I'll be in Austin, Texas at the Paramount Theater on Thursday, April 18th as part of the Moon Tower Comedy Festival. Go to WTFpod.com slash tour for tickets and, uh, you know, come out. The other thing that I need to talk about briefly is that uh, I, I discussed something on the show the other day that, uh, you know, this, this was a... Uh, 
Yeah, this was shattering to me. It was, uh, it was, it was a brutal reality where I, I don't think I, I know that I'm a bit of a mark. I know that I'm a bit of a sucker. I know that I'm uh, compelled to things that'll fuck with me emotionally. You know, whether it's a, uh, you know, I, I don't do it on purpose, but certain movies, certain commercials, certain people, it's how I feel. It's it, what's it, what makes me feel. I, you know, I can generate stuff from the inside, but I like this stuff from the outside. So I talked about this phenomenon of reels on Instagram as usually where I watch them of interspecies affection and love and care, you know, uh, and I talked about this amazing video where a giant shark delivered a, 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 a sea turtle in trouble to a boat, to a fisherman had a, had a, a netting around its neck and it couldn't breathe properly. And, and, and the shark gave, it pushed it to the boat and the fisherman cut off the thing off the net and it went away. And, you know, everybody's crying, not a dry eye in the house. And I thought it was so amazing. This interspecies, like, what does it imply about the world of wildlife where they do have this experience of caring for each other outside of their species, you know, and turns out, I don't know if I'm grateful for this or not. Uh, some woman DM me on Instagram said, uh, you know, she went to one of those sites to check the validity of the video. Not real. Not real. It's, it's mashup. It's a mashup of three different videos. And I just, my entire reality came on un, un, unglued, untethered. I was lost in the world, floating freely through space with no hope. I thought, you know, it looks like that turtle got saved in whatever situation that it was in, but the shark had nothing to do with it. I don't know, maybe in the first part of the video that shark was trying to eat that turtle. I don't know. I assume they didn't eat them. I don't know. But does this mean, does this mean none of it's true? Does this mean that, that the kitten and the monkey, that's not true? Does it mean that the crow didn't push the hedgehog across the street? Does it mean that the, the duck with the kitten isn't true? Does it mean that like the, the, the doggies and the kitties and the ducks, they, they don't really hang out together with love? Does it mean it's all fake? Is that what's going to happen in the future? It's just all going to, you're going to doubt everything other than what's right in fucking front of you. You. Even there, but that's a different other, yeah, you can doubt that, but you know, that, that's a, that's organic. But do we got to doubt everything? I guess we do. I guess we do, or we just got to let it flow over us, take the feelings that come, try to parse them, hope they're not dangerous, and move on with our life. Oh, look, you guys, I'm doing what I can here. So John Doe is a good guy in a great fucking band. Uh, I saw X not long ago. Uh, they're doing a new record. They're back out on tour a bit, and they still fucking rock. And I can't say that about most bands, even my favorite bands, but X is very specific. They are their own thing, and it's a great thing, and they fucking rock. Uh, so I couldn't help but talk to John a bit about that. But he's got a new movie out. It's a remake of the uh, movie DOA. He plays the lead, and you can buy or rent that on all digital on-demand platforms. This is me catching up with... Uh, the legend, John Doe. So, okay. So now you, you text me and you're like, they're remaking DOA. Yeah. My first thought is like, why? Because <laughs> it's public domain. Is that it? <laughs> yeah. No shit. Well, that was one of the reasons. Yeah. I had no idea that movies can become public domain. Yeah. yeah. What's the name of the guy who made it? Kurt St. Thomas. Yeah, because I'm I'm doing research. I'm watching the movie. Like, where does that? How did that come together? What do you? What, like, 
as what? things do. Just weird yeah. circumstance. So Kurt, Kurt's made a couple other movies. They went straight to video. And he's, he's actually known for radio. He worked at WFNX. He worked your, in Boston. Yeah. I remember buddy, back in the with day. Your, with your buddy Tony V. Isn't, wasn't Tony V one of your old pals from Boston? That's right. Of course he is. Yeah. He's like the main guy. Yeah. Like he, he's still there. He's like the one yeah. of the guys that everyone reveres and respects. Yeah yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he's a celebrity there. But I remember WFNX. I remember like that, that whole scene back then. Yeah. That was the, uh, the uh, alt-rock station before alt-rock existed. Yep. So he's probably playing your music. He did. He, uh, he also, Kurt also booked a, a Green Day show outside. And and like twenty or thirty thousand people showed up because it was like just as they were starting, but it was kind of like when Nirvana just blew up right, right. overnight. Yeah, yeah, like twenty or thirty thousand people showed up, and they thought they were <laughs> yeah. going to be like two thousand. So, so he's a he's a radio yeah. guy. He's made a couple movies. Yeah, and so he's he li- he's living in uh, Saint Augustine, Florida. Oh, how's that? And uh, well, his mom lived there. It's it's mm. beautiful. It's a beautiful old old town. Yeah. And as he's walking around there, he's thinking like, this looks like a movie set. This looks like the back lot from, you know, Warner Brothers or something. Yeah. And then he reads that DOA is public domain. And what does he hear in his head? He hears the X song where we name off the the band names. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. What about the Flesh Eaters and DOA and Big Boys and yeah, Black yeah, yeah. Flag? Right. And he thinks, DOA. Right. It's a sign. I'm going to call up Doe. Wow. Doe is DOA, you know. Yeah, he's been hanging out in Florida too long. And, uh, Brain's getting mushy. Right. But so we played there in 2017, played in, in St. Augustine because it was like 40 years of X. Yeah. And Kirk comes up to me and says, hey, man, what's going on? La, la, la. We exchanged pleasantries and start going. We went out after the show and he goes, I'm going to remake DOA and you're going to be the guy. Yeah. It's like, what? Wow. Man, sure. Yeah. Like I get to be the guy? Yeah. 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 Count me in. It's you're you're the narrator. I'm the man. The main yeah. guy. Yeah. So it's kind of like I mean and, and to be honest, I thought this is never going to happen. Right. But it did. Yeah. And when, you know, like with Warren Oates or Harry Dean Stanton, you know, I'm not that class of actor. Mhm. But Having been in a bunch of, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're in a bunch of shit. Yeah. And some of it's good and yeah. some of it's terrible. Sure. And, but you're always just the, you know, some other, you know. Yeah, yeah. If you get a second name, then you know you're you're doing better. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, if you're Bill. Yeah. Not so great. good. If but everybody knows you and you. If you're you know, Bill you, Jones, then you're, then you're a little bit higher up in the, in the, you know. Yeah. So, it's just funny because I, I remember but, now, like, cause it, like I watched it a while ago, but like Pinfield's in it. Yeah. It, you know, he's got these like primarily radio and music guys yeah. doing a lot of stuff in there. Yeah. Jake, there, Jake Labatz is in it. What's he uh, from? He's a, he's a guitar player, blues player in Chicago. Yeah. And, um, but you know, I got to be the guy and, and that was really rewarding. It was sh- shot on a shoestring. It was, you know, it's like legit film noir, film noir because right. all those things, like they did them in 10 days. How long do you do it? How long did it take? Like put- two weeks. Really? Yeah. All on all digital though, like you didn't. Well, it was a, yeah one of those Sony Red mm-hmm. cameras, but the uh, cinematographer is a legit guy. He did you know a bunch of um, Iron Man two, and yeah, he's a yeah serious uh, DP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what I'm talking about when you get sure. to be you know, the, and and so. 
What do you mean get to be like you? Like if someone asks you to do a movie and you think like, how long is it going to take? Where is it at? Yeah, and it's just like, all right, I got that. Seems fine. Yeah, how much? (laughs) Or or as Robert Bishop used to say, how much do I have to fall down? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But you know, it's it's, yeah, a good time. Yeah, it's it's, and it's very punk rock because it's all DIY. Yeah, you know, right now it's streaming on, you know, Apple Plus and Google Play and all these kinds of things. So it's. How did you, did you end up? Because I remember when we first talked, that it just seemed like you know pulling a screening together was a difficult thing out here. Did you get it out? Yeah, yeah, we had a we had a premiere in, up at the uh, Los Feliz Three. Oh, okay, it was great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, we had well, we won a bunch of awards, like smaller film festival awards. Okay, like twenty, I think twenty five. Oh, really? Or so. Yeah, oh, that's good. And so we did the film, you know, circuit, and then. Um, we're going to do another screening maybe in uh, January, February up in San Francisco. We did one in, in Boston. Actually, I, I was supposed to go to the one in Boston, and they diverted my flight to JFK. I missed the whole thing, but Tony V Tony. Stepped, in, stepped in, and he was like, everybody loved him. Sure. He's, he's fucking, Boston. He's fucking Tony Every, V. In Boston, that's <laughs> sort of like a, it's a, the comedy, sort of like the dance hall circuit in uh, Texas. Dig it. They're guys yeah. that are you know yeah. definitely regional. Yeah. And he's definitely one of those guys. But yeah. he's one of those guys that all the young guys respect right. still. I yeah. mean, you know, I just did a big thing out there with Dennis Leary, this benefit. And I came up in Boston as a comic. And there's definitely kind of these acts that are just, they're just animals. I mean, they're like, the they, they're just road warriors and they can just do the thing. Yeah. And they've been around forever and it's always great seeing them. Yeah. But it seemed like some of them are old school and Tony sort of influenced what would be more of a, punk rock alternative long form mm-hmm. thing yeah, it gets a lot of respect yeah 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 and it was uh and was dana gould part of that too yeah dana left early dana yeah. started when he was like a kid you know when he was like in his teens but he went to san francisco you know fairly early so he he knew all those guys when he was like a kid almost but wow. he got out and really because i don't think you know boston as a scene was that hospitable to what he was doing Right. Because, you know, he could do anything. He's sort of an interesting character. Very dark guy, but yeah. he can, you know, song, dance, mimic, you know, voices. Yeah. He yeah. And, and he's very brilliant, but it's, you know, and, and at a, the core of it is a, some darkness. Yeah. And, a, and a, well, isn't that the core of all? But he was one yeah. of the first guys that would bring it out. I mean, usually yeah. you're, you're, it's assumed. Right. <laughs> but your your job is like Big. to hide it. Yeah. You know, or, yeah. or to sort of make it palatable, but he would go right in. Yeah. I still talk to him. He's great. Yeah. Good writer. Oh yeah. I mean really he was a Simpsons writer. guy for a long time. Yeah. Did you ever do a Simpsons? No. Yeah. Not famous enough. Oh come on. That's okay. Yeah. No, I'm not. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. That's why we still have cred. Yeah. Oh yeah. We never had like the one hit and the dumb haircut. I that's true, but like, you know, you can Well, get... we did have a couple. I did have a dumb haircut, but that's which okay. one? Which dumb I had haircut? a flat top with fender. I had a flat top with where you grease back the sides. Yeah, but, but well, that's that's back now. No, sort of. was sort of dumb. Yeah, but but doing this movie was was awesome. Yeah, you know, because because we really had to like get favors done, and we we went to the our Kurt went to the St. Augustine Films uh, Commissioner or whoever. Yeah, sure. Said I want to get a I want to pull some permits to make a movie here in yeah. St. Augustine, which is a tiny little town. Right, the oldest city in America. Yeah. And he said, because uh, he had done some shooting in L.A., yeah. you know, where it's thousands and thousands of dollars to get a permit, right? Right. And he said, so how much is the permit? He said, $35. Come on. For how much? Yeah. Anywhere you want. 
for a month or longer. <laughs> it was $35 fucking dollar, 25 And it looks good. It's a weird, pretty place. Yeah. Oh, it's got all the Spanish moss. It's very, very, you know, it, it looks creepy. Yeah. And we got alligators in it. Yeah. Allig- got to have alligators. Got alligators. Got pretty, pretty women. Sure. Yeah. It had all the, it had all the things that it needed to have. Got femme fatales and, and, and uh, also like creepy business people. Yeah. And there's, sure. you know. Yeah. The, the writer, uh, Nick Griffin, I got to mention him because Kurt did a couple of, uh, passes on the script yep. and I'm reading and going like, yeah, but the story doesn't make all that much sense. And I said, Hey, I've got a pal yeah, whose favorite movie and is a legit screenwriter and his favorite movie is Chinatown. Do you mind if I give him a chance? And Nick had all these great lines. Like, yeah. One of them, uh, the Tony B says, right. Actually, when he, he's, he's holding me as Jake Lobatz is about to pummel me. Yeah. And Tony B says, don't fight. It'll go quicker. <laughs> I was like, that's like philosophy. Like, I need to apply that. We all need to apply that to our lives. Don't fight. It'll go quicker. Yeah, because it could be either, you know, uh, a, a sort of spiritual thing or, yeah, or, or exactly. something just to accept death either way, right? Yeah. So, Nick Griffin, what has he done? He did Matchstick Man. He worked on that's a— That's right. I knew I know a, that name. Um, uh, his, his brother's a, a pretty hot shit— uh, writer. He also did a, a TV series called uh, Terriers, mm. which was pretty good with uh, Donald Donald Logue. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think it only lasted like one or two seasons. I think but. Donald Logue is in the lumber business now. What? Yeah, he's got some, I can't remember where he lives, but he's he does he does that thing where you get uh, repurposed wood and, you oh, know, yeah. he, and he's like, he, he's got like a, a company that does wood. Smart. Sure. I, he th- it's like in Shit. Montana or somewhere. I can't remember. It's been years since I talked to him, but he's dealing in that. I forget. It's not re- <laughs> Is it repurposed wood? Like, yeah, I forget like what found. You call it. Re- yeah, found recovered wood. Where they, yeah, where yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah. they pull a cypress log out of the swamp right, or something right. and then cut yeah. it up. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Yeah, it's insane. I mean, I, yeah. those are like tens of thousands of dollars to get a plank. No, I know. I mean, it's, it's not. it seems like it's a good business, but, you know, actors are interesting, you know, because like, you know, when they're not working, they've got to figure out something to do, man. Yeah, yeah I mean, musicians can all play. You yeah. just go play. What are you going to do? I'm bored. I'm going to go play. Yeah. Let's do a show. Yeah. Actors are like, I don't fucking know. I got to do something to make my life interesting. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I always thought that that's why actors were a little sideways. Some of they, them. Because they, they can't just go do their thing. No, but they're sitting around. They got to, and then if they're relatively famous, I find the character actors are more interesting because yeah. they know the score. You know they're going in they're they're and and they got to show up and do this supporting thing yeah. and and usually they're much more interesting characters, but uh, the ones I know they're kind of, you know like John C Riley Toby yeah. Huss yeah I know Pat Healy who was just in that Scorsese film mm-hmm. and these guys have to you know they they generally lead I think more interesting lives like yeah. either artists or they take yeah. photographs or they paint or whatever yeah. But like Stephen yeah. Dorff's another one. He's right. out in Malibu hanging around. Right. I think if you're going to be an actor, you better enjoy free time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't take it, man. Sitting yeah. around in that trailer. Fuck. Oh, I know. Did you bring a guitar with you? Oh, yeah. Always. Oh, you do? Oh, sure. But the thing, it, it's, it's interesting because when you do get those like two, three scene parts, yeah. you know that you got to go in like ready and like on it is yeah and and it, that's the hardest thing you're sitting around for like 
fucking 10 hours. Right. And it's like, go. Yeah. Like, what, now? Yeah. Yeah, go. Yeah, you've been waiting <laughs> eight hours to do this. You've yeah. been in your trailer for two days. Yeah. Are you ready? Yeah, I know. And you got, that's a concern if, like, you sit in the trailer for 10 hours and you got one scene and you're all amped up, you yeah. know, and you come in with too much energy. But it's, <laughs> it's easier to work down than up. Yeah. So, But yeah. you're in the whole movie. Yeah. So you kept moving, right? Yeah. What, was, were, you, what were you doing, good. like eight, 10-page days? I mean, how did it work? Oh, easy. Yeah. Yeah. Easy. But I mean, luckily my character wasn't, wasn't like huge pages. John Biner. Yeah. The, the comic. Legendary comic. Yeah. You know, being yeah. the, being the bad guy, which yeah. was a, a total coup. Yeah. And he's so understated. He would do a full page, just boom. He's like been, that. He's been around so long. He was a perfect choice. You know, it's nice when yeah. you see these guys get and a he, little work. He has a, and he has a great line as, as well. He says, great thing about this country, there's always more. <laughs> and you know, right after World War II, because this is set yeah. in the you know period, yeah. it's set in forty nine. Yeah, it's so great. He's it, and it's like deadpan. Yeah, because at that point there was always more. Great thing about this country. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, now it's a more. great thing about this country. <laughs> we're running out of time. We're running out. <sighs> Let's not go there. All right, buddy. It's too sad. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It makes me sad. It makes me really sad. Everything, climate, um, politics. Yeah. People. Yeah. Consumerism, capitalism. Yeah. yeah. The that. whole fucking, the drain. Everything we knew was coming is here. Yeah. <laughs> Everything we were most afraid of is for happening. Better or for worse. Yeah. Yeah. Is that why you have a, a half a hammer on your on your desk here? This is random stuff that was in the old garage. You remember the old yeah. garage. It was all cluttered with all kinds of crap. So then I had a, <clears throat> most of that stuff's up in the house now. Yeah. So I had to pick random things that were around. <clears throat> no, it's good. I remember I found that hammer somewhere. This is like the, like the scene at the set of a uh, film noir. It's got a freaking folding knife. That yeah, yeah. Slit so, your belly open. Yeah, I got a slide. Okay. That, uh, whose slide is that? I got a couple of slides, I think. Yeah. Derek Trucks gave me one. But this is, what's his name? Uh, ben Harper. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's good. And Charlie Musselwhite gave me some dirty harmonicas. It's just, that's what you want. <laughs> like, yeah, here's a harmonica. You that could I, make a Charlie Musselwhite out of that yeah, if you yeah, had the yeah. technology. You sure could. You <laughs> could make a whole army of Charlie Musselwhite. We might need to soon. Well, I'm glad you're doing new things. I'm glad the new record, the, the movie's exciting, and people can see it on Apple TV. Yeah, or YouTube. Yeah. YouTube, Google. The new Play. DOA. Yeah. Yeah. So and how's and what 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 are the expectations? How's it? Uh, yeah, I guess he sold it. So did you make some money or did you? No, make we're, your that's money what back? that's why it's video on demand. Okay. Oh, so that's we went it. to so you know video. we went to a bunch of uh, like indie film distributors and they said, well, I don't think we can get it on this, and we probably can't do it on that. We could get it on video on demand. It's like we can do that ourselves, motherfucker. Yeah. Well, it's good seeing you. Good talking Always, to you. Thanks for the uh, invite. Thanks I, for the t-shirt. Thanks, thanks for the, the movie. And the, yeah. Maybe we'll get some people to watch it. Yeah. Thanks, buddy. All right. Thanks. All right. DOA is available to buy or rent on all digital platforms like Apple, Amazon, and uh, YouTube. And to talk about Rodney, you know, from, with me and country music, I did grow up in New Mexico. There was country music around. I remember watching Hee Haw. I think it came on before the Walt Disney show, or maybe it was the Porter Wagner show. And I, but I didn't grow up in the world of country music, and it's something that I, I've had to backload. But as I've said before, there is no late to the party. There's constant revelations. There's constantly things being revealed. There's things you can find. Uh, music, on, and most everything else happens all the time, all at once, out there in the world. No context. But I certainly love country music. 
and I've grown with it, and I'm always trying to find new country music. I mean, here uh, on this show, uh, with Rodney, he talked a lot about Guy Clark. I got to get started on Guy Clark. But also just Crowell himself is a hell of an artist. And he came up, uh, you know, with Towns Van Zandt and a scene, you know, down there in uh, in Nashville. And Towns Van Zandt's another one that, you know, I came to late, but is it late? And it's heavy for me. Towns is heavy, man. I can I can hear the weight of the world in his voice, and sometimes I can't take it. But, you know, he also, uh, Crowell, you know, has a relationship with Willie and was married to Roseanne Cash. And a, it's just there's a history there. And ever since I watched that uh, Ken Burns doc on country music, it, it gave me the, the arcing context. And I still buy a lot of country records, a lot of old country records. I just bought a record of... Uh, of Bobby Gentry and Glenn Campbell together. And it's great. I just more to, there's always things revealing themselves coming down the pike. And it was, uh, it was great because Rodney actually was playing down the street from me the night that I talked to him or maybe the day after. And I got to, uh, to see him uh, do his thing, sing his songs in an intimate space. And it was kind of great. The uh, Chicago sessions, uh, is Rodney's new record. It's produced by Jeff Tweedy. Uh, you can get it wherever you get your music. And this is me talking to Rodney Crowell. What's your primary guitar now? Uh, my primary guitar is a 1932 Gibson L00. Is that a smaller body acoustic? Smaller, it's a 12 fret. Oh, wow. 12 fret acoustic. Uh, uh, they call them uh, tuxedos. Okay. White pit guard. How old is it? It's 91 years old. Wow. Yeah. And I play it every night. Yeah? Where, yeah. Where'd you pick that up? Did you get it at that big place? What's that place called? No, no, a gift. Oh. Uh, it was a gift from um, my buddy Sterling Ball. Uh-huh. It's Ernie Ball strings and okay. uh, music man guitars. That's Oh, he, yeah? He's my good friend. It was uh, his son was getting married. Okay, so I came out to sing a song at his son's wedding. Yeah, and it was he was a godfather. He was in a tuxedo. Uh huh. And I was telling him about this uh, thirty-four L double uh, fourteen fret that uh-huh. I tried to steal. I tried to buy. I tried to shame this producer in Nashville to giving me the guitar. Yeah. And I was so I was giving this sob story to to my friend Sterling about you know man I tried to I had offered him ten thousand bucks, yeah. so he got up and left yeah and came back in the room with this twelve fret oh my god handed it to me and said shut up that's a big day it was it was it was a Godfather <laughs> moment you know it's like <laughs> and that's the guitar it is you know the the thing is about guitars and me. All the guitars I play were given to me. Right. That's what you try to do, right? It wasn't intentional. It was. I was working with this guitar player. Yeah. And uh, oh, he plays guitar with some this guy. Yeah. Uh, so he offered me ten thousand dollars for the '62 Strat that I had that Ooh. that Marty Stewart gave to me. Oh yeah. And, well, I bought it off Marty Stewart for. a Nearly nothing. Yeah. And uh, so I was working, and, and this guitar player said, you know, God, I don't have a Strat. I love this this uh, 
It's, I'll tell you, it's yeah. Dom, Dominic Miller. He plays yeah. guitar with Sting. Okay. And uh, we were working on a Beth Nielsen Chapman record, and he said, do you, do you have a, can I borrow a Strat? And I said, I got one. Yeah. So I, uh, in the middle of the sessions, he came to me and he said, I'll give you 10 grand for this guitar right now. And I said, man, a guitar's not for sale. Yeah. I said, I can't sell it to you. But I knew then that I was going to give him the guitar. Yeah, yeah. So I waited an hour or so, and and uh, and I said, you know, I can't I can't sell this guitar. I said, yeah. but but I can give it to you. <laughs> yeah. And so I did. And he said, man, every time you see me with Sting, I'll be playing it. And and, and almost every time, yes. television something he's playing the guitar. But the point is, yeah. after I gave that guitar to him, suddenly people started giving me guitars. Magic. It was, it was just magic. It's like said so like like a, a, a wartime Gibson J forty five. Oh come on. Yeah, nineteen forty two, big baseball neck. Yeah. Vince Gill gave me a thirty seven L double O that I don't even know where it came from. Just influx of guitars that were given to me. You've worked with Vince a long time on a lot of stuff, right? Well, we go way back. Yeah. We go back to when we were both living out here. Was we he were, always an amazing guitar player? Because now he's yeah. like a transcendent guitar yeah, player. Yeah, he was always an amazing guitar player. It's kind of interesting about some of those guys. Because, like, look, you know, I'll be honest. Like, I had been sent a couple of your records, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, some of the later records. And, but for the most part, my, in terms of country, you know, like, I'm, I, I realize this about jazz, too. If you don't grow up with it and it's not in your house all the time, and I grew up in New Mexico, it was around, but it was not how my parents were geared or my family was geared. Like, I have the old standbys. Like, I got a lot of them. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, George Jones, and I right. got, you know, I, I've got all, you know, I've got Patsy's records. I've got, uh, uh, I got hey. some Bobby Gentry records. I got right. all those, you know, all the, the basics. Right. But there's a chunk of time... You know, post, I guess, 72, 73, you know, after Willie and Waylon kind of break it open a little bit, right, where you kind of come in mm-hmm. and and fill out sort of what becomes modern country, right? Yeah, I suppose you call it modern country. Um, yeah, that started to happen around 72. Because I saw you, I, went, I was at Willie's 90th, mm-hmm. and when you came out, and, you know, did two songs. I mean, for me, it was like the highlight of the night. And I'm saying like, I got that guy's records. Now, wh- how does he fit in? Like, that's really where it starts for me. Mm-hmm. So, so now I had to, you know, kind of do this thing where I'm like, I got I to gotta go through the whole Rodney Crowell you gotta, arc. You got to dive Rodney Crowell, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I've done it. <laughs> it's a thankless job. <laughs> But, it, but what's interesting to me, though, is that, you know, coming, like, the, was there a point at the beginning, you know, when you when you start writing songs? Also, I want to ask you about that because, you know, I play and people ask me if I write all the time and I don't even know where to start with that. I mean, I know how, how to write a poem, I guess. Mm, yeah. But where you grew up in Texas. Mm-hmm. And what was, you know, what was the stuff that was getting you going? Well, well, first of all, my, my father was a, uh, what we would... You know, we call local singer, you yeah, know, yeah, local band. What we, now we call local bands. Back then, he was in East Houston, played the Ice Houses and the Honky Tonks. Oh, yeah, on the East Side of Houston, and guitar player, guitar player, and a singer, better singer than me, my father. Yeah, but uh, but 
you know, a real child of the Depression era and uh, disentitled and it's like, well, I can't have a career. Right. And and he did not write songs. Yeah. Um, but God, he knew, but he had a wealth of knowledge of songs. And it, it, somehow he was a savant, I suppose, because he grew up on a, on a sharecrop farm in western Kentucky. Uh-huh. And it would be Saturday night. He'd have to walk to a neighboring farmer's place who had a dry cell radio and listen to the Grand Ole Opry. But he could hear a song once or twice and have it. But, like, what were the songs that were in his repertoire? I mean, is it going back, like, Carter family stuff? Or? It was Carter family stuff. and um, Jimmy Rogers? Uh, some Jimmy Rogers. Yeah. But um, it was more late Hank Williams. Okay. Hank Williams had, had, was— happened. Yeah, you were talking about Keith Richards. And my childhood, Hank Williams was Keith Richards. And we had we had 78s at the house and and when I was 4, I think I kind of got a little record player on the floor yeah. in these 78s yeah. out of out of the dust sleeve and I could play Hank Williams. And I I would amuse myself playing Hank Williams way back there. And in fact, my dad took me to see Hank Williams uh when I was two years and four months old. Yeah. And I wrote about it in this this memoir. Yeah. Now, I really do have a memory of uh, Eddie of, of cool air coming down from overhead, and I have a memory of my father's wild root cream oil that he had in his hair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the rest of the memory was his that he would impress upon me, which was always, hey, Never forget that I took you to see the Hillbilly Shakespeare. And he drove it home. <laughs> yeah. And How was the show? Uh, <laughs> what I remember of it was, yeah. was, was just that. Was, it was smell. <laughs> yeah. And Eddie of Cool Air. Yeah. But I wrote about it and stole his memory. Okay. You know, and yeah. wrote about it. But I think, given my mother, who both my parents were uneducated, they were seventh grade education. Yeah. Maybe my mother made eighth grade, but but they were smart. Yeah. And uh, my mother played with words. Um, she just would make stuff up. Right. Just rhyme stuff. And, yeah. And my father just knew a million songs. Yeah. And so it seems like I was destined to be a songwriter if I think about it. So the house was full of it. The house was full of music. Yeah. And and made up music and and church music and yeah and. My favorite aunt, when we go see her up in Kentucky, those who could play would play and sing, and those who couldn't, they'd just move the furniture out of the way and dance. Yeah. So I come from a culture of people who like to dance. Uh-huh. Dance to music that we were playing on acoustic instruments, and maybe somebody would have spoons and play spoons. And Well, it's interesting, the, the, the communal aspect of it because it, it really feels to me when I see stuff and I hear stuff of that era that there there was a real uh, sense of, of relief and ecstasy from whatever situation people were living in by doing those kind of group music situations. Yeah, I suppose when really when you don't have anything else. Yeah. You know, when it when you know all you got look to look forward to is getting some seeds in the ground and growing something and hoping for the best. And, yeah. And then when some have, somebody might have a dry cell radio, you know, five miles down the road, you could pick up the Grand Ole Opry. That was the culture yeah. that that really country music came from. Yeah. And when do you start writing songs? Mm, well, 
good ones? <laughs> no, I mean anything. I mean, like, I, I, it's so weird because when you listen to Hank Williams, the, the sort of simplicity and, and perfection of, of of most of his songs, it's kind of is daunting because there's part of you that thinks like, well, I, I can do that, right? Yeah. Well, you have to remember as a song or as a songwriter. Yeah. I have to give my cut myself some slack because when in 1947, 1948, when Hank Williams started writing those songs, the very simple uh, love songs was still new, especially right. in, in that Southern culture, that country culture. Uh, so he was you know, like, "I'm uh, so lonesome, I could cry," or you know, "Your cheating heart." Yeah, that was new. By the time this early 70s came around, Bob Dylan had been around, and sure. Chris Christopherson. It was that sim simple song had already been done, and it it was a different thing. So, I, and I well, think that's interesting. So you're saying like yeah, that previous to Hank, it, 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 there there were themes, but they weren't innately personal in a way. Hmm. I would say they're more broad stroke. Yeah, it's broad stroke simple. Mm -hmm. It's like. Today I passed you on the street and my well, Hank, heart fell at your feet. Sure. Hank Almost Williams. a pop song. Yeah. And it's it's like, you know, <laughs> it's going to be hard to get get a song started with that line now or a, a line that's simple. There's, they're out there, but right. you got to work to get them. But a lot of the traditional country that your dad grew up with was some of it was spiritual. Some of it was, you, you know, uh, almost, I, I imagine some of that stuff almost seemed like it had like a... English or Celtic folk songy kind of element mm. to it, and it feels like what it, that that Hank kind of made it almost teeny bopper music in a way. Well, he made it sexy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just by his stance. Yeah, you know, it, to me, that's why I say he was the first Keith Richard kind of rock and roll star come out of country music, and he because, lived it because he was lascivious, you know, and uh, he was dangerous, menacing. Yeah, it was menacing, and. You know, the, one of the things about the culture where my parents came from is, uh, that influenced me way back there is, is ghost stories and, you know, really beyond, you know, beyond reality was a big thing. The church was so much about beyond reality. Yeah. You know, a little guy, a red guy with a sharp tail and a pitchfork. Sure. Songs about that, you know. It's like, right. Like, if you're not careful, that guy's going to come get you. And he believed it. <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of people did. I never did, but but I come from people who still sure. <laughs> and and when do you start kind of becoming aware of of the task? I got to Nashville in 1972, and I got there. I'd already started writing songs, but there there weren't any good ones. I hadn't written any good songs. They were really sophomoric and. Hadn't gotten there yet. But when I landed in Nashville, yeah. I, I bumped into a songwriting uh, salon, really, yeah. that uh, Guy Clark and Towns Van Zant and uh, this was post, when Chris Christopherson made poetry, or the quote-unquote poet yeah. popular in Nashville at the yeah. time, because it, it had, it, I mean, he sort of gave Nashville what Dylan had given the rest of the world. So by the time I got there, songwriters were gathering around in Nashville because it was like, hey, you can you can kind of chase that poetic side of things if if you if you got a 
an intuition or an inkling of how to do it, and you can make a living here. And and so, but that was almost like you know, I was thinking today that around the same time that that everything changed in movies, you know, from old Hollywood to Easy Rider, mm-hmm. this is around that same time. Yeah. So. Well, Right, cultural shift. Yeah, yeah. And and so when you're hanging out with Towns and Guy, I mean, were you aware? What was their sort of, you know, traditional country bearing down on you? Well, I got to hang with those guys. Uh, my songs weren't good enough, and and I was smart enough to not try to send my songs out there. But I knew Appalachian Dead Baby songs, and and I knew you know. I knew these tradi- <laughs> traditional great old country songs that I learned from my father. Yeah. May I sleep in your bed tonight. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Or may I sleep in your barn tonight. And, yeah. And when it, in the circle, when it would come around to me, I could, I could pull out one of those songs and hang in the circle for a minute because the authenticity of what I knew kept me in a spot there where I could learn more from these guys because that's when I first, you know, town set there and, you know, gave me a lesson in songwriting when he played Poncho and Lefty. So first, he had that already in '72. Yeah, it was about seven end of '72. The first time he played me that song. Oh my God! And what? 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 Did, how did you react? So, uh, well, the way I reacted is, oh, <laughs> this is what you have to do. Yeah. And if if you're gonna hang, and if you know, if you're gonna be worth your weight here. This is what you got to do. And had he been, uh, were people recording his stuff already? Not so. He was more the rambling, gambling folk singer who yeah. would come into town. And Guy Clark was the curator of this uh, kind of Paris in the 20s kind yeah, of thing sure. that, that happening in, yeah. in Nashville. And he, Guy was a curator, and, and he and Towns were good friends. But Towns was out on the road, would come in. Back into Nashville and and uh, kick his heroin habit for a while, and, yeah. And then when he would come down finally, and all the songwriters would be sitting there with their guitars on their lap and stuff, waiting for Towns to come down. Yeah. And meanwhile, <laughs> we've been playing each other our our kind of mediocre songs, sure. except for Guy, he was playing, you know, L.A. Freeway and right. good stuff. Yeah. And then Towns would come down and kind of, kind of straightened out and and lay something on us and it was like oh shit uh, <laughs> okay and you know what that's how I learned yeah. I mean I had a background from my father and my yeah. mother from the culture I came from so I, I I was a born songwriter I you know I own that but being around those guys it was like ah that's it this is what for, I want to do for me like you know, when I listen to Towns, I, the, the weight of his spirit is sometimes too much for me even to take. Yeah, you know, if if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think I do. You, you know, like the songs are what they are, and some of them are are pretty heavy hearted. Yeah, but you know, at diff- on different records, you can you can hear it in his voice that the the, the sadness is real. Sadness is real, but there are times when the le- when he would have levity. And it was it was as if the the songs the writing just grew out of the ground or dropped down from from somewhere in the ether. Wasn't that kind of how it happens, or, or in general? I mean, like I saw Dylan, you know, that famous interview where Ed Bradley's grilling him. He's like, "Well, you know, you once wrote, 
you know, the, these, uh, I don't even remember what his examples were, you know, yeah. he, you know, uh, uh, it's all right, Mom. Only bleeding. All, right, you like, take your pick. Right. Well, Bradley says, like you, you know, do, do you do you think you could write those again? And he's like, no. And Dylan says, I don't know where that came from. I, I couldn't write it again. And, and I'm paraphrasing. Bradley goes, Well, well, uh, do you want to? And he's like, I, I did it once. <laughs> you know, mm, I, you know what I mean. I, I'm sure he wants to. Sure. Who wouldn't want to? Any writer wants to. But it's something I've given consideration to which yeah. is I wrote some songs in my early 20s mm-hmm. that were like Till Again Control Again or or I Ain't Living Long Like This or it's great songs those there, are great there are a handful of songs that I wrote in my early 20s yep. that were sort of like capturing you know lightning in a, in a bottle yeah and in as much as my talent was able to translate whatever that was yeah where in the case of Bob Dylan he was writing you know, uh, it's all right, Mom. I'm only bleeding, or Mr. Tambourine Man, or all that brilliant stuff. Yeah, but yeah. that early twenties bolt of lightning that comes down—it's um, if you stay in the game long enough, you got to learn how to do it. It's where that kind of inspiration is a gift from on high, and then if you stay in the game, you got to learn how to, through hard work, to muster up that kind of inspiration. So it's like, you know, in the, in the songwriting game for me, is what's happened is that I've had to, uh, I have to earn my inspiration now by getting up every day and going back to work. And what, and but, but like, so when you're younger, I guess it's the same with what I do with stand-up or anything else, that, you know, you just kind of, all you're doing is walking around with a notebook and you're waiting. Mm-hmm. Or, you, you know, you're writing anything that comes into your head and you don't even know where it fits in, right? Yep. Do I mean do songs come to you in completion or, or are there bits and pieces? They have come to me fully formed. Uh, it's rare, but a few have come fully formed. A lot of you know, early on in in the game, I was I wrote three quarters of a song several times. One of my biggest ones was "Shame on the Moon" that Bob Seger wrote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. The last verse on that song was terrible, and is, <laughs> and it still is. Uh, you know, I spent what yeah, that was a big hit for him. Wasn't I, mean, it? I know, but I spent the last forty-five years or whatever trying to fix that last verse, and and so much so that I just rewrote the whole song, kept the chorus, and then threw out the read. So, so you do a new version of it? Yeah, yeah. It's a, the last verse. Did not work. Now, I, I when I talked to Bob about that, he, he said, no, nah, man, it's a good verse. It's yeah. a good verse. But another songwriter who recorded it, who's gone, a guy named Mac Davis, he's not here I- From Lubbock. Yeah, from Lubbock. He recorded it, and I bumped into him at some kind of affair, you know, and he said, yeah. hey, Rodney, I recorded your song. I sure yeah. wish I'd have been there to help you with that last verse. <laughs> And I know he was taking it out of me, right? But I just grabbed him and hugged him, and I said, finally, somebody who knows that that last verse stinks. <laughs> Did he get a hit out of it? No, no, Seeger had the hit. Uh, what Mac Davis album was that on? I remember his hits, Baby, Baby, Don't Get Hooked on Me. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Lubbock in My Rearview Mirror oh, was yeah, his yeah. song, yeah. Was it, did, he, uh, did he write those? Oh, yeah, he was, he was uh, very... He wrote a lot of songs. Yeah. 
Now, how did that work? Like when you got there, because like now, when you guys were sitting around, did you ask each other for tags, for lines, or hooks, or you know, help on things? Like, or wasn't it that kind of thing? Were you just no? Competing? I mean, well, certainly with with the early days when when I probably the most uh, generous songwriter I've ever been ever been around was Guy Clark. Yeah, and he just was welcome the conversation come over you know what guy would do he'd say come over you, you got a new song yeah he said now put the guitar down look me in the eye yeah and tell me the words huh to your song yeah and he said well, i'd do it and, and those the time when i'd have to look away because he had these like piercing eyes yeah it's like when i would i couldn't look him in the eye and deliver a line i knew that line had to go yeah and it was a very generous thing to do, but it was also really daunting. Because in that moment, you realize it wasn't honest. It wasn't honest. Oh, and man, it, and man. even if even if it doesn't all have to be honest, but if you got three lines, three good lines, and then a fourth line that's not a good line that you're just cobbling together. It's kind of lazy, I guess. Lazy, yeah. Bad writing, right? You, you you say it to somebody, look them in the eye. If you really respect who they are. It's like, man, you know, you don't want to, you know, subconsciously or even consciously, you yeah. know, you yeah. know, you're trying to whistling past the graveyard with a bad line. Yeah. And that was such a generous thing to have as I was forming as a songwriter. It, it what it led to is, is self-editing. And, and so is there a point though where, because look, man, I mean, you've made a lot of records and I know. The one thing I know, like, the more I, I buy country records is that country guys make a lot of records. You know, I mean, but like, you know, like, there's no end. Like, you know, every every so often I'll go, what is this Willie Nelson record? <laughs> yeah. When, <laughs> when, <laughs> when, when did this happen? It's kind of astounding. <laughs> well, well, yeah, you, Stopped off in Abilene and made a record. Well, yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Same with Waylon. There's a million Waylon Jennings records. Yeah. Maybe that's as it should be. It was, Well, probably, interestingly, like Johnny Cash was a great songwriter, but he became super, super famous, as you know. And so he was so busy being who he was, he didn't write songs anymore. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. So, like, so because like you made all these records, and clearly, you know, you were gunning for something as a performer. But it, it seems that you know your your songs were so frequently covered and 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 uh, revered, and to the point where people were like, "I'm going to record that Rodney Crowell song." Now, is there a point where you're sort of like, you feel like as a performer, you're kind of like, "Well, is anyone noticing this?" Yeah, last night. Because <laughs> <laughs> when I saw you, I was like, holy shit, this is the, this is the high point of the night. Yeah. Uh, well, it's interesting about me in some ways because, um, and here's what I know about me, is I developed as a songwriter really far ahead of, of singer. Mm -hmm. I really I didn't like the sound of my voice until I was 50 years old. And I made, you know, I made some hit records in my 30s. And I can't listen to them. I don't like the sound of that guy. But do you like the songs? Yes. You know what's weird about, you know, like I think probably one of your biggest records 
is it's hard to find <laughs> diamonds and and, and diamonds uh, and dirt. Yeah, the diamonds world. and dirt. Yeah. It's like like I like you know, I can't find it. I yeah. mean, I can't find it on Apple Music. It's like the only one, and it's your. It's like I think it's probably your biggest record, right? Biggest selling record. So, that's it's not I mean. my best record, right? But I mean, but there were like four or five hits on there. Yeah, well, there's five number one songs on that. That's thing crazy by me. Uh, interesting at the time. Um, I have 15 minutes to start them, you know, and and at that particular with time, that record, yeah. And 1988. Yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't ready. It, really, I wasn't ready, and it, it's it was okay with me. I, I noticed that you know, for instance, when you get out there and, and you get some hit records in the country yeah. field, then you got to show up at 7 a.m. Uh, you know, the, with the local radio to the oh yeah, you know, know. chipper chipper chipper. Everything, Sell those everything, tickets. Everything's going really fast. You know, it's like, yeah, comics really, do it too. Yeah. And uh, I would wander in, you know, kind of glazed over. Sure, like, oh, of course. I don't want to be doing it. You know, yeah. it's like, I don't do this fast-paced shit. Oh, you so know? you didn't know how to sell. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not a, you know, I know how to sell. And it's like, I don't want to be there. I like to write songs. I like to perform. I love music. This is what I do. Yeah. And you know what? All of those disc jockeys, they got to they gotta look at me pretty quickly and said. This guy didn't want to be here. Oh, yeah. He's no help. Yeah, that's right. All they know is this sort of like, is this going to be a pain in the ass? Is he yeah. going to ruin our momentum? It's true. And you know what? Well. I would ruin their momentum. <laughs> and, you know, it, for a while there, I was like, yeah. hey, what's wrong with these people? Don't they understand I'm an artist? Yeah. And then later on, as time went on, I started to go, oh, well, God. I was no help to those guys. They're just trying to do their job, and I walk in, and I'm all grumpy and yeah. you know snobby about. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I'm. Be this is all beneath me. Yeah, you know, it's like because I loved Bob Dylan and I loved all these great artists yeah, who didn't sure. have to do that stuff. I I know what you mean, man. You know, but I had to do it if I was going to be, you know, the a big player on that level. Yeah, and luckily for me. I made a good living as a songwriter, and and all of those songs that were covered by other people, and a lot of them, I can honestly say, I, the only time that I ever wrote a song for somebody, yeah, twice I did it, once for Emmy Lou, and once for somebody else, Jewel. Uh, yeah, well, I wrote a song with Jewel. It, it was fun, fun writing my songs with Jewel, but but the, all the songs that worked. That, yeah. that got a job out there. Yeah. Um, I just wrote them to write the song. For you? Yeah. Well, just for the song. It's like the real, to me, the real act of songwriting is it's not for Rodney. It's not for you. It's like, what does the song want to be? Right. And I have, you know, I have people come to my songwriting workshops and, and I always tell them, I said, look, I said, the whole key to this thing is learning to let the song tell you what it wants to be. Huh. Not for you to tell it what it wants to be, but that's my theory about it. I'm sure it reveals itself to you. Yeah, it'll if if I'm patient enough, a song will tell me what it wants to be. Huh. I'll find the right words and I'll find the right. The melody happens more quickly for me than than the language does. Yeah, that seems to be the the trickiest thing. You know, if if I'm to think about it, you know, I'm I'm not a great singer, but I mean, melody seems tricky because. I mean, in country, I mean, how many chords are you really using? Four or five? Yeah, yeah. You can use more. I mean, I'd, 
I'm, yeah, you. I come from the country, man, but I got some songs with ten or twelve chords in them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uptown, but I mean, but a lot of them, they're they they are. And I, look, I'm I'm a blues guy, you know, a rock guy, but I mean, the basicness. It, that's the amazing thing is that, you know, this is the people's music here, so you know, you don't even have to be a good musician to necessarily make an amazing song. No kidding. Right. No kidding. <laughs> right? Well, you know, the very best of Hank Williams and the very best of Howlin' Wolf yeah. is three chords. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. And, and they're the same three chords, really, just yeah. with a different tone. Just a different way of doing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how you find melody that is unique within that is is kind of a miracle, you know, anybody, mm-hmm. to, to find a unique melody within this sort of uh, eternal three chord process within you know a major or minor pentatonic that's yeah that seems like the hard part not for you huh i don't know i guess it's just intuition or just what i was born to do i mean coming being born in 1950 into the family i was born into the real old-fashioned country music and then I came of age in 1963, or yeah. you know, or girls and and social, and and there were the Beatles, and yeah. there was Dylan coming right off, right on that, and then yeah. right on the tail of like of my being completely consumed with with the Beatles and yeah. then completely consumed with Bob Dylan in like 64, 65. Right around the same time, Merle Haggard in 1965. So I was drawn to Merle Haggard as strongly as I was drawn to Bob Dylan. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Because and, because what what's appealing to them is that if they're resonating some sort of truth. Truth. You know, because Merle is certainly <laughs> kind of a rugged truth there. Yeah. I mean, you know, Dylan was sort of a trickster, but it was there in the, in the poetry. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, it was dazzling. Yeah. To me, but, it was dazzling. But some people I talk to, they think that, you know, leaving Louisiana in the broad daylight is like the the best country song ever. Hmm. Well, it's it's unique in that in that sense. If you if you analyze the song. Yeah. Uh interestingly so, the opening line, Mary took the running with a traveling man. I wrote that up in Laurel Canyon. And I was making a record with Mary Kay Place when she was on the old... Uh, oh, Mary Hart, Mary, Mary Hart. Like, oh, she's, she's, she's she a country was, singer. Yeah, she's a country singer. Right. We were making a record with her, and and we were... The session was over. It was late as n- at night. We were up in Coldwater Canyon, and and we were talking, and, and Mary Kay would come... You know, she would just string lines together. She's yeah. almost like a savant poet in a way. She yeah. Was, and so the uh, Mary took to running with a traveling man. The whole tumbling language that happened with that song came from Mary Kay, and the the Mary took a running was was Mary. Oh wow! So I've yeah. always, uh, you know, owe that song to Mary Kay Place. Wild. That's the interesting thing about the evolution of of I think country music during your lifetime, is that you know th- there was a push to to make it more broadly popular, I think. But then, like, you know, because I can see in some of your records that, you know, the style of production that was going on and what was sort of the thing to do in the 80s, mid-80s, late 80s, it's it's very different. It kind of gets in the way of of authenticity sometimes. 
Yeah, yeah. I suppose you're right about that. It's like the '80s was a pretentious decade, mm. really. You know, a lot and, of coke, and, yeah, coke, <laughs> a lot of coke, and a lot of pretension. And and look, I was guilty of pretension. It's like I was. I had those haircuts and, you know, those shirts. And They're right on the cover of your records. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> as, a matter, as a matter of fact, that... I don't know it, if it's pretentious as much well, as it is I, a, I, a I little look, goofy. You know, it's like Diamonds and Dirt. Yeah. There's a picture of me on the cover of that album, and I wrote a song about it, actually. It was dinner time around the house, and, and I went over. I was going to put on Booker T or something, yeah. and I pulled out Diamonds and Dirt. And I looked down, and there I am yeah. with a wife beater T-shirt on with a bolo tie and a, and a Levi jacket and yeah. t- skin-tight jeans and yeah. toe-tip boots. Yeah. You know, and, and I looked at it closely, and I went, this guy's walking down a dirt road. You don't dress like that to walk down a dirt road. I thought it was the most pretentious thing. Is that where? You, is that was that the song? Did you do a video from one of those songs? Was that the album where you're out in the yeah, middle of, of nowhere? Of course, with, yeah, with yeah, we, the guys. Yeah, we drove it into the ground. But I turned the album, yeah, to my wife Claudia across the way, and I said, "Poser," and she said, "Well, I'm sorry." But yeah, yeah, <laughs> you were just doing what everyone else was doing. I mean, you got, that was the way people dress. You got the skinny tie and the sports I jacket. Know. I went back in the back of the house after that and wrote this song called "I Don't Care Anymore," <laughs> which took care of that. <laughs> when you, because like when I listened to, uh, you know, those songs you did w- with Willie that night, which ones of his of yours did he do? Did he record? Several, yeah. Um, but the one one of them that I did was that he did that I sang that night. Yeah. Till I gain control again. What that, that, that song? Like you know, I listened to a couple versions of it, and it's like you know, I don't to some because you know, that can mean so much. Mm-hmm. So there's something about the language of of the idea of until I can because like you get to a certain age and you're thinking like well, he had a stroke. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, that could happen. <laughs> right, right. And, and then, like, if you look at it another way, it's sort of like... So you're saying it's timeless? <laughs> <laughs> kind of. It's timeless in the sense that, like, till I gain control can mean anything. Yeah. It could be money. It could be drugs. It could be booze. It could be health. Yeah. It, it could be, you know, it your could sanity. Be, it could be trying to write a good song. Ah, uh, yeah. It, it could be uh, trying to seduce a girl. Yeah. So at that pr- particular time, I'm pretty sure it was trying to seduce a girl. Oh, Yeah. When did yeah, you write it? Well, sensitive language, you know. It's yeah, like, sure. Sure. <laughs> and and so, but that, that the element of songwriting that makes a timeless song, and I think that there, there seems to be a theme with you a little bit, is, is that, you know, no matter what you go through, you're going to end up in your own skin for better or for worse. And, and Sadly. <laughs> right. And, and maybe you'll go through something again. Mm-hmm. Maybe you won't. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I, I may learn. <laughs> yeah. Now, were these themes that you found in in just in your life, or or is that was, are these because it seems like that you know country music deals with some of this stuff, you know, But it, I don't know that it did previous to Hank. What we're talking about now, but this sort of self awareness of 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 um, of problems and obstacles, and you know whether they're love or 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 money or whatever. But there's the, the self-awareness of sort of, you know, realizing like, well, here I am and I did this. And, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, I wonder, Chris Christopherson was really 
I, I think he brought on some of that yeah. look, looking at yourself because it, like Chris brought the bedroom into country. Like music. Sunday morning coming down, that kind of yeah, stuff. But, yeah. But also, you know, help me make it through the night. Oh, yeah. Which, yeah. which look, I'm straight up, I would have never written Till I Gained Control again if I had not sung Help Me Make It Through the Night like a thousand times in yeah. the Holiday Inn. Yeah. Right. And, so, and Christofferson was like, you know, there, there are these guys like, there's a, like a profound, like, I guess what you said earlier is kind of true is that like, you know, with guys like, you know, Towns and with Chris is that, you know, you had something that resembled, you know, real poetry, mm-hmm. that there was a a, a, a a minimal language that could carry a lot of weight, like Leonard Cohen, right? Yeah. I mean, you look, his, all his stuff is lean stuff, man. Yeah, well, it is lean, but it's so beautifully written that it's right. It's timelessly heavy. That's it. That's the trick, right? Yeah. I mean, the to me, I wasn't such a Leonard Cohen fan early on. Me neither. But the end of his, the last three or four records he made, um, starting with "Waiting for the Miracle." Yeah. Uh, came on a live. I had a live recording. It's like it's like suddenly Leonard Cohen just grabbed me by the collar and I think that said, "Listen up, son." Right. And it's like he left breadcrumbs. Right. To me, and and Dylan always has left breadcrumbs, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but I think Leonard Cohen may have reached the pinnacle of it. But it's like the if it's an opposite approach lyrically in a in a way. I mean it, it I mean it seems to me well there's a lot of fairly simple perfect Dylan songs. But like Cohen never wavered. He was never about fireworks, right? No. Whereas Dylan were like you know he'd mash up a million words and you were just sort of entertained by the flow of the thing and then and, and then he'd put out like blood on the tracks and they'd be like oh fuck. Yeah. Yeah, right. this is some pure stuff. Well, yeah, I used to care, but things have changed. You know, when I, you know, that movie, Wonder Boys, uh-huh. sitting through a movie, and then that piece of music comes on, and I go, God, there it is again. Yeah, one more time. Do you still do you do you use these guys to beat yourself up with? No, no, no you can't. No, man, it's inspiration. Yeah, it's like good. I don't want to. As I always say, this I don't want to to be like. Bob Dylan or Hank Williams or anything, but I do want to access what they accessed. And, you know, whatever my wiring is, if I can access that place where that inspiration comes from or the creativity comes from, whatever my wiring in and whatever I'm able to make out of it is what I'm going to make out of it. And I, I don't, I can't compare what I do to what Leonard Cohen did, mm. but but what I can do is look at Leonard Cohen's work with with so much admiration to say, I don't want to do that, but I want to do my version of sure. that. And when you look at your catalog, you know, wh- which of the ones are ones where you're like, I, I nailed that one. Oh, I started like uh, 2001 from. Yeah. When I made the Houston Kid, that seems like to be the beginning of some sort of mature wisdom thing. That was that was when I felt like I'd be. Until then, I felt I was a songwriter. Yeah. At that particular point, mm-hmm. I became a recording artist, and and I stand by it. the work that I've done. You know, there was a 
one or two duds in the last 20 years. But for the most part, my output has been pretty consistent. Yeah. Starting with the Houston kid. And and it seemed like you had a little more control of the production, maybe? I had more control of my voice. Okay. As I mentioned earlier, I didn't like the sound of my voice until I was 50. And, And what changed? I lived in it. My voice got lived in long enough to have some bottom and some gravitas, really. Yeah. Because I would hear it. My father had a beautiful singing voice, and my mother squawked. Yeah. And I think until I was about 50, when I would sing, I'd hear my mother's voice. Yeah. And it wasn't pretty. Yeah. You know? And what about, like, so you were with Roseanne for a while. Yeah. Cash. 13 years. And you guys are still friends? Good friends, yeah. Yeah, and and you worked with Emmy Lou a lot, a lot, yeah. And what when you work with these women in in country music and two big ones, and they would do your songs or you would produce, you know, Roseanne's records. You know, did that inform you in any way, in terms of some other part of yourself? Yeah, yeah, I think. It would go back. My first relationship with with a woman was Susanna Clark, mm-hmm. guy's wife. It wasn't a romantic relationship, but early on in the in the the kind of songwriting salon that I told you about, Susanna was around, and she'd pull me aside, and and she had some wisdom, and she was eleven years older than me, I think, and and uh, and of course I started coming on to her, you know, sure. like, that's what you do. And she yeah. said, she'd hold her hand out and say, stop. I'm going to teach you how to be friends with a woman. <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. And she did. And so, therefore, when Emmy Lou and I became so tight, and I knew how to be friends with a woman. Okay. And, and, uh, and she was just coming off of, had Graham died? Mm-hmm. It wasn't long after Graham had died that yeah. that, that uh, our paths intersected. Yeah. Uh huh. And what? Because she's an interesting artist because you know it's that voice, right? Mm-hmm. And and when she when you guys started hanging out, like what was the 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 foundation of that relationship? Did she was did she gravitate towards your music? Yeah, I think the. The only real reason that I became a member of the hot band, that original Emmy Lou Harrison yeah. hot band, was because I had a relationship with Emmy that was about songs. Yeah. About we wrote some songs together yeah. early on, but but we our conversation um, was all about songs, and I we would just sit and play, and I knew all the old Leuven Brothers songs. And, okay. Yeah. And those harmonies. In truth, the relationship that she had had with Graham. Yeah. that was taken away from her. We kind of had the same relationship as what she told me about the way she and Graham got on yeah. is Graham taught her songs and and introduced songs. And that's that's mainly what happened with with Amy Lou and I. She, I wrote songs that she yeah. was recording, but also it's like, we sat around and and when she recorded Poncho and Lefty, where I said, "Hey, you ever, you ever know this song?" And she said, "Oh yeah, I used to hear Town singing." And then next thing you know, she's recording it or 
uh, Blue Kentucky Girl. Uh-huh. These songs that were just conversations. What was the one uh, year she did? Bluebird, was it? Bluebird One. Yeah, yeah Bluebird One. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She was, that was one of the first ones. And thank God, Emmy Lou, I mean, besides being my lifelong friend or adult friend, yeah. is, is she started recording my songs. My reco- my career as a songwriter, uh, Emmy Lou's the one that really kicked it off because she's, her records were known, and some people looked down there and saw that little name that said, who's this Rodney Crow guy? And they went looking for the songs, and people started recording my songs. And Crystal was, Gale recorded, uh, what did she make a hit Till of? Gra- yeah, Till I Gain Control yeah. Again, yeah. How'd you meet Roseanne? Oh, Emmy Lou and I were at Waylon Jennings' house. How was that fun? It was fun. It was a, <laughs> it was a gathering at Waylon's house because Emmy was new. Yeah, just breaking open, and I was her pal, and I traveled around with her, and we would sing duets. You yeah, know? it was like, well, you're going to Waylon's house, so Emmy and I'll go, and we'll sing a couple of Leuven Brothers songs, and and uh, yeah, we'd, and that night. That that one night, Roseanne was very shy back then, and yeah. I noticed her, and I remembered her, and that was in Nashville, but we both lived out here in, in uh, Los Angeles, and she came to my 27th birthday party that somebody threw, and uh, from then on, we were kind of connected. Right. Yeah, and, and then she asked me to produce. I wasn't a producer. <clears throat> Yeah, but she asked, she, she had heard a bunch of demos that I made, and she said, I want you to produce this record that I'm going to make for this German record company. Yeah. Which I did. It came out in Germany, and then Columbia signed her here, and they just hired me to produce her here. And how was that for you? It was fun. Yeah. It was painting by numbers. I didn't know what I was doing. Sure. We were just making it up as we went. And she had a couple hits, right? She had a bunch of hits. Yeah. That must have been exciting. Yeah. It was and like... And in those those Waylon records from the early seventies when he broke away, was that around the time that you guys were hanging out? Yeah, this would have been around seventy six. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I remember I I was in uh, Nashville recording with Guy Clark and Waylon came around and and he had heard I ain't living long like this that that song and. He said, "Hoss, you gonna re- you you got any plans for that song?" And yeah. I said, "Well, it's on my album." I said, "I don't know." He says, "You gonna put it out?" And I said, "Well, it's out." And he said, "I'm recording it. I'm gonna make you a number one." <laughs> and he did. <laughs> and so, do you did you maintain relationships with these guys through your whole life? Yeah, I did. I, you know, I, yeah, Waylon and I fell out with each other accidentally. Um, over Which, what? Over a, a, a road manager. Wow. Who was, uh, we straightened it out because it wasn't. Yeah. Uh, but also, I got fired from producing a Waylon album before I actually got started because the head of RCA wanted me to produce Waylon. Yeah. So we went over to Waylon's house to have a meeting. Yeah. And both of us uh, at the time were imbibing separate of each other on the white stuff. Oh, yeah. and uh, Never good. You know, it wasn't good. And so (laughs) the head of the record label wanted to change Waylon's direction. He wanted me to do it. So I come waltzing in 
Well, man, uh, we're going to get a new rhythm section. In the, uh, we're gonna, and he looked at me and he said, son, get out of my house. <laughs> uh, I drove home. And, and, and that I was it? it? I, drove, I said, oh, God, how <laughs> stupid, how stupid yeah. could I be? Yeah. Yeah, I let a record company make a fool out of me. And, and Willie, you get, you're friends with? Uh-huh, yeah. I had his, his son in here and it was pretty great. Lucas. Yeah, I've never yeah, seen Yeah, talented boy. Yeah. Lucas and I have written a couple of songs together. Yeah. Yeah. And what was it like writing for Johnny? Um, well, as, you know, I never wrote for anybody. Yeah, right. I, but I, you know, because he knew I was around and he knew my songs, he would just pick one and record it. It was, uh, it was more about... It was an interesting time in my life when I came into that family, you know, that giant of a man, you yeah. know, the man in black. And, yeah. And it was kind of cute, I think, and I think he was bemused at me coming around, you know, kind of drunken <laughs> swag, trying to <laughs> yeah. muster enough swagger to say, I'm my own man. I might be married to your daughter, but I'm your, my own man. I need I need for you to respect me. And he just kind of looking like, oh god, another one. Give me a break. <laughs> yeah. But he, how many of your songs did he cover? I don't know. Um, I don't know, man. Yeah. I haven't thought about it. Four or five. Yeah. That must be an amazing feeling. Yeah. Most of the time to hear. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, you like singing your songs, but to hear somebody like Johnny Cash or Willie Nelson yeah. or Waylon. Yeah, exactly. Do those songs. Yeah. I can't even imagine it's what good. that feels like. It's a good thing. Yeah. I remember the two albums, I think, that kind of defined that the the shift in Waylon was that uh, Honky Tonk Heroes. Mm, yes. And This Time. This Time is my favorite <clears throat> record of his, mm. I think. I love that record. I think he did that at Willie's Place. Yeah. Yeah, well, Honky Tonk Heroes was a big one for me. Yeah. You know, to to hear it and think, oh, yeah, there's freedom in here somewhere. Right. But it seems to me that, like like you said, with your records, like the Houston Kid, that began the run. Like, did you like, did you see find any inspiration in what Rick Rubin did with Johnny? Oh, yeah. Because yeah. that seemed to be, you yeah. know, the way for, for what coming into your own voice at a certain age can look like. Yeah, well, that's a gift of from own high for John at the yeah. time because interesting thing about I think maybe one of the best things I learned from Mr. Cash was yeah. was oh, the old Circle Star Theater up in uh, Daly City going into San Francisco. Yeah, I was up there like nineteen eighty. Gosh, I, I don't remember exactly. No, seventy nine. Mm -hmm. He was playing there with with the Carter June and the Carter family. And it's the it's like fifteen hundred seater, yeah, with it's circular, and there might have been three hundred people there, yeah, and it was a low point, and uh, so it went up, and I was thinking, oh man, I was really feeling sorry yeah. for him, you know, and it's like, oh, this is surely embarrassing, yeah. But when the show was over, yeah, the black limo pulled in. He got into the back of the limo and sped away as if there were thirty thousand people out there. Yeah, and it and I went, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That that's the man right there. Yeah, and it's it's it just took Rick Rubin coming around, uh -huh. you know, finding him and lighting a fire underneath that thing again. Yeah, 
It was a beautiful thing to watch. Yeah. And, and God, so much good stuff came out of it. Yeah. Hurt, I, Hurt is oh. one of the best pieces of recording yeah. ever. Yeah. It, 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 it makes you cry every time. Yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> beautiful. But it seems like, you know, when, when Dylan hooked up with Lenoir, that there was, you know, there was something happening for artists at a certain age where their, their voice as it stood in its full maturity and wisdom was elevated. Mm. Right? Yeah. Like Time Out of Mind. I mean, what the fuck was that? I mean, it's a crazy record. And then, yeah. like, even like I, I was listening to your the record that you did that that has it's so it's so close ties, close ties. Yeah, that's a great record. That's yeah, one of my favorites. You know, because you know, you, you know, it's you're up front. Yeah, you know, and, and the music is just you know to 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 kind of support mm-hmm. what your voice is now and what your songs are now. Yeah, I just had. A kind of a similar experience going to Chicago yeah. recording at Jeff's yeah. you know, Jeff Tweedy studio. Well, how'd that come about? Because you know, I wanted to you know talk about that up front, but like you know, that's a, it's a great record. Yeah, yeah, I'm 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 proud of that record, and um, it came about. I was driving home late one night. You know how when you drive home alone and there's no traffic and yeah. the, the car's dark. It's the best. And the music comes comes in, and it just it inhabits the inside of your car. It's the best way to hear music. Sometimes it's, I was driving home, headlights, yeah, you know, and in my own you know reverie, and Jeff comes on singing. I know how it feels to not be loved from his album Warm, and it was on NPR, and I said, "Wish they play that again." So I immediately bought it. You know, downloaded, yeah. it, bought it, bought the record. I listened to it. We were on a uh, the Kayamo Cruise, a songwriter festival out on the high seas, and he was on it. And and I saw him across the way, yeah. and I went over and um, I said, "Man, I said, you know, NPR sold me one of your records because I was a Wilco fan." Yeah, sure. I had, I had Wilco records. Did you have those uh, those Uncle Tupelo records? Oh, you, no, that no, was kind of a country outfit, really. I, no, I didn't. I wasn't aware of that uh-huh. at the time yeah but then i became and i loved wilco but then i became fixated on on jeff from that and i listened to that record over and over and over again and i told him on the on the cruise i said man i love that record he said he said we'll come to chicago sometime and record yeah so one of my uh, daughters is really involved in what i what i do and and uh and we got in a conversation, mm. and it came up, and I was, she said, Jeff Tweedy in, invited you to record <laughs> at his yeah, studio? Yeah. And I, was, I said, yeah, we was just being nice. Yeah. You know? Was, she said, get your manager to call right now. Yeah. And I said, well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and lo and behold, it's like, yeah, let's make a record. Yeah. So, all right. You know, so... Off we go. I always wanted to record in Chicago for obvious reasons. Howlin' Wolf. Sure. You know, Chuck Berry. Yeah, Muddy Waters. Yeah, all of all, all of that everything, crew, yeah. Everything that happened up there. And it was the Rolling Stones recording sure. up there. And uh, so off we go to make a record, and it was so much fun. It was, How was it different? Because, like, I know he's got, like, you know, he's kind of a, 
like a, a magical analog guy. Like you know, it's, nah, we were we were recording digital, right? But he has. But I mean, in terms of equipment and how his, he, his equipment is, you know, yeah. for a collector with right. drool. Yeah, and uh, you know, I took my main guitar up there, and I wound up playing all of his. Oh yeah, yeah. It's like oh god, he's. You know, God bless him. He's got some great guitars. But, he's a, <laughs> but as a producer, man, he was the right thing, right thing, because he would never. He had no ego involved in how he works. He was just, you know, when something wasn't, he let us play. Yeah. As long as we were playing the song as it ought to go, he, you know, he was he, good. He would come in, maybe play guitar with us, and but then at that, you know, whenever he had hit a roadblock, he would just walk out there and say, okay, you know, maybe you want to do this, maybe you want to do that. That simple. We do it. There it is. Was there something different about the environment where you guys playing? Because, like, it, it looks like the way he's got it set up, you can play as a band. Was that happening? It was all as a band. Oh, that's good. Well, I'm singing on a, a, a walk in the studio. This is SM7 right yeah. here, these microphones. Yep. And, you know, in Nashville, we have these... These tube, these two fifty ones and M forty nines, and these great tube microphones yeah. that we sing in. Yeah. And Tom Schick, the engineer, as I I walk in, he said, "I'm sitting down behind this SM seven. There's yeah. a two fifty one across the way." And I said, "Tom, you're not going to put that mic on me." Yeah. And he said, "No." And I said, "Why?" <laughs> he said, "Because the electric guitar is four feet amp is four feet over there." Yeah. He said. This SM7 is is going to bleed a lot less, uh-huh. and that was and that's everything on that record. The only thing we overdubbed on that record was a, a few bits of background harmony, and Jeff put a banjo on one song, and that was it. Everything else is just live in the studio, and, and I'm at my best when I sing live. Yeah. Because it's uh, it's immediate, I guess. And, yeah, well, it's the phrasing. It's like your phrase. The music, the music is happening. So the phrasing. If I get a track when I produce my own records, yeah. Oftentimes, I'm listening to everybody else and not paying attention to what I'm doing, having to come back and sing later. Yeah. I'm not any good at it. It's like I need to be leading the band right. to, to really get the best performance out of me. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense. And then you chose, like, it's interesting because it, you you did do a town song on there. I did, and that— A heavy one. Yeah, it is. Well, I think I, I told you earlier I was sitting with Towns early one morning, yeah. and, and he played me. I played him. What happened is, you know that scene and bringing it all back home? Or— uh, uh, the Dylan movies yeah. in London, yeah. and Donovan yeah. is on the floor playing like a pretty weak song. Yeah, and he finishes it up, and yeah. Dylan breaks into "She Makes Love Just Like a Woman." Yeah, right. Breaks just like a little girl, and it's like, oh god, he just slays the poor guy. Yeah, with yeah. Well, that happened to me with Towns Van Zandt. With Poncho and Lefty. Well, I played this really shitty song, and Towns played Poncho and Lefty, yeah. which. Slayed me, but yeah. then he also played No Place to Fall. Yeah. And when we were, I was talking to Jeff, I said, you know, I said, I've, I've never recorded a town song, and I want to record this song because I think I remember it exactly the way Towns played it Yeah, for me in 1972. Wow. Now, whether that's true or not, 
that's how we went at it. I said, I remember exactly how it sounded. You had the feeling. Yeah, and that's how I recorded it, like one take. It's great. And that's it. It's great. How'd you choose the other songs on this new one? Uh, A lot of them came from Pandemic. Oh, yeah? I was holed up in my home studio, and and during the the lockdown was great for me. Yeah. Because I just wrote songs and monkeyed around back there in my studio and recorded by myself. You didn't get sick? Oh, I got sick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got plenty sick, but I got over it and got back. Yeah. So maybe most of those songs were written during the shutdown, lockdown pandemic, and some of them had been around a little while. You know, it sounds like he honored your thing. It didn't sound like a, a Wilco record. But like there, there, there are times where like I could hear, you know, there's one cut I think on the second side where he, he brings in a pretty menacing, muddy guitar. Oh, that's me. Oh, is it? Yeah. That's great. Dude. That's, that's me playing my guitar through a champ. You got one right Yeah, there. right. Just breaking it up. It just, that was actually, that was Tom Schick, the engineer. Oh, yeah? I was monkeying around with playing that guitar part and Tom comes out yeah. and he tweaks the amp. Yeah. And I said, that's a little heavier than I normally get. And he says, yeah, it sounds great. So that, you know, I'm pretty proud of that. It, it's, it's great, man. Yeah, it's like I yeah. never I never went that heavy before. Yeah. <laughs> it's time, man. <laughs> yeah, it was time. Yeah. So now what, what are you doing now? Are you just on the road? I'm on the road. A lot? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm in your neighborhood tomorrow night. I, I got a gig somewhere around here. Where? Some theater around here in Glendale. Oh, the one right there? The Arden or whatever? Yeah. Yeah, tomorrow night. What is that called? Really? Yeah. Well, shit. Yeah, and I was... Uh, I got to come down. I was in San Luis Obispo last night. How was that? It was fun. Who's the band? I got a trio. Okay. Yeah, it's got a, a violin slash fiddler. Yeah. An Irishman. Yeah. Great musician. And an Aussie guitar player it's a, we're a trio oh yeah it's a it's uh it's all acoustic but it's it rocks pretty good yeah yeah can i come of course you can okay man you can be my guest i'll put you on the list oh man big night i, I think i can walk there you probably can <laughs> great talking to you man you too my pleasure there you go that was it those are some like Serious American voices on today's show. John and Rodney. Uh, you can get the Chicago Sessions. Uh, it's available wherever you get your music. Hang out for a second, folks. Hey, folks. This episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. You know all those times you've heard guests sneeze on the show. Well, actually, you don't hear any of that because we cut the sneezes out when we're editing. But take my word for it, people definitely sneeze in here, and when they 
they do, I've got a box of Kleenex on the table right in front of them so they can use one and get right back to business. And here's what Kleenex means to me, a tissue that will hold up. We've all used those other tissues that you blow holes right through. When I see Kleenex, I know that tissue is up for the job. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Okay, listen up. Full Marin listeners, we're doing a look back at the past year for the next few weeks. And this week we dropped an episode where we talked about some of the memorable moments from the podcast in 2023. This is right at the beginning of the year, episode 1399 with Cat Williams, which yeah. I feel like is a great example of like... <laughs> A, a talk where both you in the moment while you were having it and then me, as soon as I started listening to it, we were both like, I think this is all bullshit. Yeah, that was like one of the great amplified bullshit talks. But, you know, it, but we've had other guests like that. Yeah. And I don't think I don't think that there's uh, that it's necessarily all bullshit. But, you know, his perception of who he was or who he chose he was or how he sees himself now in relation to the events of his life, you know, he builds stories around them. Yeah. And, and, you know, and even when he's telling you them, you, you know, I know, you know, it's embellished to be diplomatic <laughs> and so does he. Yeah. Right. Right. What was the, the, what was the that crying hookers? This, that's the it. crying this, hookers. The story of how he became a pimp was because he showed up to a house where a pimp just died and the hookers were crying and asked him if he would please take over, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or how he read every book ever yeah, written. He said, like, I've read like 12,000 autobiographies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, a it number. was a number that was physically impossible. It was like the number of days he's alive. It would but, not be possible to read that many books. But to sit with that guy in whatever version he's going to give you was hilarious. Because, like, he chose, he was going to be like, I'm going to talk to Mark like a regular person. <laughs> And then, you know, and, and then you're like, all right, so this is Cat Williams, you know, being a regular person. Yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and sort of like, uh, you know, sharing this version of himself uh, that is uh, highly intelligent, has done all the homework. Yeah. Was, you know, Winston Churchill there, was his inspiration. Sure. But there there are bits <laughs> and pieces of it that are, are so clearly true. Like, it's very easy in that conversation, which is what makes it great to see that there, there is truth to all of it. It's just, he's gone back and tweaked it a bit, you know? Yes, exactly. But that was one of those ones where it was just so fun to sit across from that guy and watch him do that to me. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that afterwards, like we were talking and you were like, I, I don't know if this is going to sound good or anything, but it was entertaining to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To sign up for the full Marin, go to the link in the episode description or go to WTFpod.com and click on WTF Plus. All right, here, I, I worked hard on this guitar. It took me a long time. Yeah. Here we go. <laughs>
lives, monkey and the fonda, cat angels everywhere. <laughs>